Would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Paul, again, as we talked about last time, he says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If, if a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask that you would open this passage to our hearts and our minds, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to your Holy Spirit, and that, God, that you would be able to really speak to needful things in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this summer, thanks to global warming, I had tomatoes. In previous years, because my yard doesn't get enough sun and also the help of long-legged rats, also known as deer, um, my garden tends to underperform. It fails to meet expectations as promised on the package. What I grow looks nothing like that thing that I planted based upon the package picture. And generally, we would say they suffer from a failure to thrive. Um, but this often happens with people in a lot of different ways as well. I mean, we know that there's some people physically fail to thrive, whether it's due to a lack of proper nutrition or even adequate mental and emotional stimulation. Children and even the elderly can many times begin to wane and to suffer. We can, we can fail to thrive professionally when somebody underperforms or they don't meet the expectations that others have or they don't live up to their potential. We hear all this phrasing all the time. It can happen to us relationally where we talk about young people, many times young men who have, have a failure to launch, uh, referring to people who get stuck or who are not moving forward and not maturing, at least at the pace that we think that they should be moving forward. And then there's always people who don't thrive emotionally. We talk about the Peter Pan syndrome, uh, people who just don't want to grow up. They, they like adolescence. It's nice to be taken care of and funded uh, to get up when you want and live with a wife the way you choose. But they don't ever really step into the role that is expected and is needful for them to step into. But what we overlook is an area more than any others where I think people begin, fail to thrive, and that is in terms of their spiritual life. In fact, Paul complained about this with some of the churches. For example, he wrote to the church in Corinth in, in chapter 3. He says, Brothers, 
I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk but not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. In fact, he goes on later on repeating himself essentially in chapter 14 of that same book. And he says, brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. The NSAB translates it, be mature. In other words, the call is to coming into a maturity in their faith. So much so that the writer of Hebrews even adds in chapter 5, he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You, you need milk, not solid food, for solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. People who suffer from this kind of condition are, well, actually, I love the way that Chuck Smith used to refer to them. He called them SAD. He was basically using an acronym. He said, spiritually arrested development. And as a result, he says, their lives are very sad, that they may be people who are very successful in areas of their life, may be very adult-like in a lot of areas of behavior, but when it comes to their spiritual life, they're more in line with what Jesus talked about when he talked in the parable of the sower of, of seed that is planted in good soil, but it never becomes fruitful, at least to the degree that it could and, and that God desires. In fact, in Luke 8, 14, he said, they are choked by life's worries, by riches, by pleasures, by the desire for other things, and essentially said, they do not mature. And we can misread that. We can think that is God telling us that if we worry that suddenly we're terrible people or if we have material blessings that that's wrong or if we enjoy something we shouldn't any longer and that we can only desire reading our Bible every day and we can't enjoy the fact that the Cougars beat UCLA again. You know, does the, is that what he's trying to say to us? And the, that's not the point. His emphasis is that because of these things, they're not maturing. There's this thing that's hindering them from reaching the potentiality for which God created them. In a way, I'd phrase it as being half-formed in the sense that they're earthly-minded, but they're not heavenly-minded. They're worldly-wise, but not heavenly, uh, uh, but, but heavenly, they're very obtuse. And you and I know people like this, good people, nice people. Um, they may be someone very close to you. You may see them every morning in the mirror. They're someone who has, has all of this ability and this capacity, and they're able to accomplish so many good things, have many talents, so many skills. But when it comes to the spiritual life, there's just not a consideration. It just doesn't factor into the, the arithmetic of their day-to-day -day life. And as a consequence, they make all of their decisions and all of their choices relegated to basically a very small set of factors, none of which have necessarily to do with God. You see, spiritual maturity matters to God. It's not something that God says, well, this is an option. You're saved, and if you grow, that's, that's optional. None of us would understand that if it were talking about our family or ourself. I mean, I love babies. I love two-year-olds. I love four-year-olds. I love five-year-olds, but not when they're 28. 
And then suddenly those behavior patterns are not only obnoxious, they can be downright dangerous. The rage of a two-year-old and the body of a 28-year-old is scary. And we understand that there needs to be this maturation that takes place. That's why God, when he speaks about you and me, he speaks about his church, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, uh, this is the amplified version, he says, you are God's garden, you are his vineyard, you are his field under cultivation. I like that word, cultivation. God is cultivating you. He's doing things in your life to bring forth a greater fruitfulness. Because, as Jesus said in John uh, 15, 8, he said, or 8, 15, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. So God says that I glorify God when He is able to produce fruit from me. And it's interesting because when we look at a fruit tree, I was just pruning mine the other day, and, and it's an interesting thing about fruit trees is that the fruit tree doesn't stand there and say, I am going to produce cherries now. It's not a conscious effort. It's simply the flow. If the root is the root of a cherry tree, what is going to come out on the other side are cherries. Now, there's quality factors that go into that. And God is all about those quality factors. So I don't want people going out of the room today saying, boy, I'm just going to really, really make it happen. I'm going to win one for the gipper. As if somehow you can produce out of yourself this fruitfulness. Fruit is something that naturally comes. And Jesus said in John 15, it comes by simply abiding in me. But when we abide in him, what happens? He becomes central to the issues of our life. And really, that becomes the biggest factor. So how does God address that in our life? Well, it's interesting. Jesus gave an illustration in Luke's gospel in the 13th chapter. Well, he talked about a man who had a fig tree, he said. And he, he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig around it and I will fertilize it. And as I was reading that, we often interpret that in terms of God's dealing with Israel and we talk about end time stuff. We'll get to that in New Year's Eve. But more importantly, I think at this focus point, we need to understand that he's talking about how to take a tree that's unfruitful and to induce it to become more fruitful. And I think it therefore has application to you and me. But I like the first thing he says that he begins to dig around it. Yeah, you know what that's called? Trials. God begins to dig around the, the hardened, compacted soil of your life. He begins to aerate the soil, not only so the moisture can begin to penetrate to the roots better, but also the fertilizer that's coming later can actually be neutrally absorbed into the, into the roots and produce the nutrients that it needs. And one of the things you find is that when there is that kind of lack of focus in our life, God begins digging around in your life. He begins to tap into those places where you and I easily become hardened. Now, I'm not saying you're a calloused, hard-hearted person who doesn't care about God, but it is really easy to just let areas of one's personal life go unaddressed 
and it becomes compacted and hardened and resisted so that you no longer hear the Spirit of God. There have been points in my life where I have been so knowledge-based in my view of my Christian life that my heart was not particularly responsive. And how does the heart become responsive? By God ripping it open, (laughs) digging into it, tearing it apart. And as you go through that kind of emotional struggle and you are crying out, God, make my problems go away so I can live happily ever after that suddenly you begin to realize that there's something percolating down deep inside of you. And not only is it beginning to have an opening in your life, but it begins to go through that fertilizing part of your life because you fertilize a plant because it is undernourished. And we realize I have been undernourished by the Word of God, undernourished by my prayer life, undernourished by going to church, undernourished by being in fellowship around people. Not that you don't do those things or aren't having those experiences, but it's not having the nourishing effect because there is a hardness so that you can sit under the Word, you can read the Bible, you can go through all the things which become little more than the kind of discipline and exercise that marks a willful life. But that crushing, breaking, irrigating, excavating experience of the Spirit of God isn't taking place. And until it does, all of that exposure means very, very little. It's interesting when people are in a moment of crisis, how much more receptive they are to helpful instruction. That when you're sitting on an airplane, I'm guilty of this more than most people, and they stand up there and start going through their whole spiel about the safety thing in the back of your seat and how that teaching you how a a 1957 Volkswagen seatbelt works still. And um, the lighted aisles and in case of a water landing, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ever seen a rock land? And they, you know, they go through all this kind of stuff, and you're sitting there. Too, you can see why I don't pay attention. I mean, <laughs> I'm exposing my heart. But you know, the, the few times I've been where they said we are having problems, for example, landing gears not coming down, our flaps aren't working, those things. Suddenly, I became very attentive to all those things. I started actually counting how many seats it was to the exit. I began to about double check that the lights actually were on. I began to think about how I was going to respond. It's just a natural thing. And the perception becomes the reality. So if my perception is there's no danger, there's no challenges, there's no obstacles, there's no difficulties, then I don't respond. But when God begins to dig away at your life, when He begins to call out to you, there's a a desire and a yearning in your life that God would nourish your soul, that you don't just read the Bible because that's what a Christian does. You read it because it nourishes your soul. You don't pray because that's what Christians are supposed to do. You begin to cry out to God as a child does to his mother or father. You begin to yearn to be with other people who can speak life-giving words into your life because you need that encouragement and strengthening, because God has ordained that His Word would live most powerfully when it's spoken by faith from one believer to another. And then, of course, not in this passage, John added in chapter 15 that he also prunes every branch that does not bear fruit. He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. He begins to cut away the dead wood from your life the dead works from your life. 
It's an interesting dynamic to, to see how a tree can begin to become burdened down and unproductive because there are things that aren't removed. There, and and it's, it's amazing to me. My wife and I were praying this year. We started in January praying that in our lives that this year would be a year of jubilee. And if you don't know that term, year of jubilee came every 50 years in Israel when everything that was, was uh, lost you know, your properties and everything else, your family members, everything had to be legally restored to you. And I kept on praying, God, I want to see you restore all the things that have been lost, all the relationships that are broken, all the, the things that used to be that aren't anymore. I want, want to see you do that. And when it came after praying that for six months, it actually was in the month of June, suddenly I had this epiphany, this revelation that the year of Jubilee was not only getting back, it was also giving up. You had to give back everything that you had gained that wasn't meant for you forever. And I began to say, in fact, before you can begin to receive again, you have to begin by making room by the giving up. That God's pruning work in your life is opening up space in you. But let me tell you, I was pruning this last Thursday and the trees were yelling at me, at least in my head. Oh, that was my wife yelling at me, don't kill it again. But... <laughs> She tells me she gets frightened when she sees me go out with the clippers. <laughs> Doesn't know if the trees will survive. There's a real simple rule for pruning a tree, by the way. It's, you know, you need to prune it enough so you can throw a cat through it. Uh, somebody told me this the other day. He says, it's not good for the cat, but it's good for the tree. <laughs> but I keep on telling my wife, this is, I'm really, this is right. Anyway. But essentially, this matters so much to God that God begins this work of, 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 of working in us, of, of digging into our lives, of, of fertilizing and irrigating our lives, and even cutting away things that are keeping us from moving forward. And yet, how we squeal and how we whine when God begins to pare away things from our lives that we have come to believe are essential for our success. And God says, you don't realize it's draining, it's bleeding away the vitality of your life. You're being choked literally by these things. And that's really where the role of the church comes into all of this because, you know, one of the things we have to understand is that God has no only children in His family. God meant us to be born into families, and He, he meant the church to be this family. And that's why He says in Ephesians 4.11 that it was He, speaking of Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. In other words, He's just described to us what the church is, and he says, to prepare God's people for works of service, to be built up in the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and to once again become mature, no longer infants. That somehow this idea of maturing to the place where we no longer become just simply the receivers of the grace that others show, but we become grace givers ourselves. That we not only become the blessed by the generosity of others, but we also become generous with not just our monies, but our time, our energy, that we see ourselves intricately connected to everybody else. So that how does God prepare us to serve? Well, First, He saves us. 
when we're saved, God plants the seed of his Holy Spirit in the soil of our life, and he begins to water it and to nurture it, and it grows, and it becomes something living inside of you, a dynamic, a dimension of life. But then he begins what we call the process of sanctification. In fact, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said in chapter 4 of the first letter, he says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that I get nominated to the Pope and he sanctifies me as a saint? No. Nothing quite that glorious, but in, in a way, much more glorious. It literally means to be set aside for his purpose. That when God sanctifies us, what he says is, I have chosen you to be mine and I'm setting you aside that you might be designed to fulfill my purposes not only in your life, but through your life and connection to other people. Because as Paul put it in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, you're not, only, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Or as we just read in Romans 12, he said, your, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It literally means that he begins a process of making God's will the primary purpose and pursuit, the central focus of our life. So that if you want to sit down and say, okay, what is it that God is doing in my life? Why is God taking me through the kinds of things that I'm going through? The answer is because through that straining process, He becomes primary. He becomes central in your life. And oftentimes it only begins when we begin to cry out for Him to remove whatever it is we want to see changed in our life, not realizing that what is really at, 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 of importance here is not the removal of the problem, but the centering of my life upon Him. This thing is called the process of discipleship is another way of putting it. And discipleship is not something that happens all at once. In fact, in the Gospels, we see almost a fourfold progressive process of which Jesus used to disciple the 12. I put them into four categories, watchers, walkers, workers, winners, because you have to do that when you preach. But he starts off by saying to them in John 1:39, come and see. Just come and watch. I mean, we have this idea in our mind that Jesus just walked up to, to Peter one day and said, you know, stop fishing and follow me. And Peter was just going, okay, I'll do what you ever say. No, it, there was months of Peter being prepared, months of Peter coming and seeing and just kind of hanging out with Jesus, just watching what Jesus was doing. And after at least six months, we find that Jesus then says to him, after the miracle of the fish on the Sea of Galilee outside Capernaum, he said, come and follow me, and I will make you fisher of men. In fact, it's repeated six times. So that there was this juncture point in the life of all those 12 men where they had to stop doing what they were doing and reorient their life around a transient lifestyle of following Jesus wherever Jesus went. And it is some time after that before he ever appoints them as apostles. We know that there were hundreds following. There were hundreds who had been given the same invitation. But many were called, but only a few were chosen. And that's when he called them, thirdly, to be workers. 
In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The phrase, take my yoke, was a rabbinical term that meant to become a student, to become a disciple, that you now begin to see your life focused even more narrowly than it ever was before, that your life is about following me and learning my ways. Come and learn of me. No, not gather information, not become academically advanced, but rather just to begin to understand who I am. The discipleship is not about learning a set of skills that enables you to teach the Bible or exegete it or do any other thing that you think makes one a effective leadership, Christian, and le Christian leader. It's about coming into a place of learning to discover who the heart of Jesus really is. As Gail Irwin put it in his great book, it's learning the Jesus style. What was Jesus' style? Because he says, if you do that, you will find rest to your souls. And it wasn't until after he was crucified and resurrected and they were born again and filled with the Holy Spirit that he said finally to them in Matthew 28, 9, go and make disciples. Now they had gone from being simply watchers, observers of what's going on, to people who are just simply following Jesus around partnering with him in some loose sense to becoming those who actually begin to work with him as he sends them out and they begin to do his very work and his behalf. But finally they come to a place where he returns to the Father and they go out as his ministers and they go out to win the souls of others to Jesus Christ. I go through that process because I think you need to understand that that's what God wants to accomplish in your life. And what we have to really ask ourselves is what are the things that are hindering that from happening for me? What stands in the way? Maturity is a lifelong process. My wife has great hope that one day I will become mature. <laughs> but again, it's more important than information or education or knowledge or gifting or skills or talents or positions or even calling. It requires really kind of three key things. And the very first thing I think it re maturity requires is having the right attitude. That attitude is the biggest obstacle to becoming mature in, in life and in relationships. And when I say attitudes, there are three right attitudes I think we have to have. The first one is we have to love God. Jesus said that's the first and it's the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Don't even... even operate under the pretense that you're going to serve God if you don't love Him. Which means that we begin to realize that, that as, as Paul said to the Corinthians, that if I have not love, I gain nothing. But instead, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. They should no longer live for themselves, but for him. That really effectively serving God and maturing and growing in our faith has to begin with the fact that we love him because we recognize, as John said, he first loved us. And that may seem like an abstraction to you, but it's one of those things that you really need to ask God, make that a living reality, that God, you love me, you value me, you, you chose me to be your own. 
Because what that creates is the same way we wear these t-shirts that says generosity changes people. The greatest change in life is the generosity of God loving me and forgiving me for my sins. And out of that knowledge comes the kind of generous lifestyle that God is calling you and I to follow after. That if you don't have that in your life, if, if the idea of, of being a lover of God, being your own Theophilus, doesn't really click with you, then, then that's the place where you need to begin to start the journey, recognizing that He loves you. That love becomes compelling. That secondly, what happens when you realize that God loves you, that it becomes a joy, not a burden, an honor to serve rather than an obligation that's laid upon you. I love what Paul writing to the Corinthians about raising offerings for the church in Jerusalem. He says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there, the word hilarion, literally means hilariously. That you give with great joyfulness and thankfulness in your heart that God, you allowed me to do this. That so many times we talk about serving God and it's kind of like, well, the Lord made me do this. And the Lord made me do that. I mean, I'm the worst whiner in the team, I mean, quite honestly. I complain and whine all the time. Oh, I want to go fly around the world and get on an airplane and do all this stuff, jet lag and airplane food. And <laughs> That's my sin. You can pray for me. But, but I love my, one time Gail Irwin speaking to a group of pastors, many who are complaining because their churches weren't as large as they thought they should be. And he says, if you have one person that listens to you, it's one more than you deserve. <laughs> That's why I always get nervous when my wife isn't feeling well and wants to stay home. <laughs> I also honestly ask myself, why in the world do they ever come back? I don't anyway. But it's an honor. It's a joyful thing. It's not a burden. If it is, it's not love. Because out of that joyfulness comes a willing, thirdly, submission, first to God, then to other people, so that when Paul described himself to the Romans, how did he open up? He said, Paul, the bond slave, the doulos of Jesus Christ. That was the first defining characteristic of who he was. Who are you? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And as I've often said, the thing about being a slave is you don't set your hours. You don't set your terms of employment. You can't quit when you want. You don't decide what you're going to do. You're under obligation. So that for you and I to be complaining about circumstances that we're in, because we think we deserve more, should have more, misses the point completely. Most importantly, you stop having a thankful heart. You stop having a grateful heart. You stop approaching life with this generousness of spirit and there becomes kind of this clinging, grasping, clutching approach to life. So don't ask me to do anymore, to give anymore, to sacrifice anymore. And the minute I began to say that, all they want is my money, all they do is want, I began to say, that's mine. That's mine. And I began to worship the evil trinity, me, myself, and I. We need to seriously weigh that out, friends, in our hearts. Because it's not what people ask me to do. It's not what I feel obligated to do. It's what I believe God wants me to do. 
God says, I love it when you give cheerfully. I love it when you give generously because it tells me and the world that you love me. But when you complain about it and you wrestle with it and you resist it, what you're really saying is that you don't really love me that much. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, he said, the greatest among you will be your servant. To the Corinthians, Paul made this interesting comment about the Macedonian Christians who he said they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us in keeping with God's will. They submitted themselves to Paul after they had first submitted themselves to God. And really, that's all service begins there. It begins with this conversation with God. God, what is it your will? How can I honor you with my life? How can I serve you? How can I give of myself in, in, in service to you? And then God will begin to direct you to where he wants you to be, who he wants you to be with, and what he wants you to do. Right attitude is the first thing. But the second thing is the right attributes. And by that I mean, first of all, the right calling, that God calls us. I've had people say to me things like, well, it doesn't matter where you serve God, you can serve God everywhere because God is everywhere. And my response to that is, but God, you aren't everywhere, you're only one place. And my experience has been that God calls people to places to do certain things. He doesn't just simply say, anybody who wants to be a pastor can be a pastor. Anybody who wants to be a teacher can be a teacher. No, he calls people to specific things, to specific place. The reason why I have pastored this church for the last 33 years is because God called me to Spokane. Believe it or not, there have been other offers. Believe it or not, there have been thoughts and other opportunities and conversations that just kind of come with the territory and it always came back to the same dynamic. Do you have permission to do anything else other than what you're doing? And the answer was no. Because you're called. God tends to say to us, plant, grow where I planted you. That's why when Paul again described himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, he said, called, appointed, selected by God to be an apostle. He didn't appoint himself as an apostle. God said, I have selected and chosen you, and I'm going to prove it because I'm going to appoint you to be an apostle. And as Paul would later say, and the evidence of that appointment began to show forth in my life. In the same way, it will be true in you. Because God will not only place you someplace, he will gift you with a special, special capacity to bless the church and other believers. Now, part of the thing about spiritual gifts, and this is where... There's a lot of wannabeism in Christianity. I want to be this, I want to be that. You see somebody being used by God in a very special, unique way, and you go, that looks cool. I want to do that. I want to do that. Um, I love what Dr. Swindoll said one time. He said, you can't get out what God hasn't put in. You can't get out of somebody what God hasn't put in. God puts certain things. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is telling us in what we just read in Romans 12, where he said, just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, are many, we, are, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. The important thing is that we are in the place where God has graced us to be. 
And believe me, I have from my own experience been in situations where I was either assigned or I chose on my own to serve God in a particular capacity and discovered very quickly I do not have the grace to do that. For example, if you ever see me lifting the hood of a car with a tool in my hand, understand that I am not graced to do that and you would be better off finding somebody who is. There's just some things you're not graced to do. It's not, it's not what God has placed within you. That's not what He has given to you. And it's not like God has never spoken to me. I mean, there was time when my car, my car broke down and I'm praying over the car and suddenly God told me what was wrong with it. I went down and bought the part, replaced it, and the thing worked. And I sat down saying, this works pretty good. And I tried it again and it didn't work. But in the same way Paul writing to the Corinthians said in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working but the same God works all of them and all men. Now to each one of them the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So just so far, God is designed to respond to the common good. What is good for the common community of believers? And he says, God has given every one of us something that is designed to bring good to the rest of us, which I think it's fair to assume that I withhold something that God has given me, and the body suffers as a consequence. There's something that becomes vacant and lacking. He goes on to explain, to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, to still another interpretation of those tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body, and each one of you is part of it. Each one of you is part of it. Each one of you is part of it. My memory isn't what it used to be. My memory isn't what it used to be. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those have able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those with speaking in different kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all miracle workers, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And the answer in the Greek, whenever you have a rhetorical question, is always no. No, we don't all have all of these gifts. There's only one person in the history of the world that had all the gifts of the Spirit, and his name was Jesus. The rest of us are parts and pieces. But the point is, finding where that part fits and then exercising that capacity to the best of my ability with all of my heart, soul, mind, body, and strength as an expression of the depth of my love for God. The question I often get asked is, how do I know what my gifts are? And, you know, there used to be, years ago, it used to be real popular, these, these gift surveys, you take this list and you check this, do you feel yes or no? And you go through all these, these lists of things. And the problem with that is there's a degree of wannabeism in us. So that I always came out as a Bible teaching pastor every time. I mean, it was just, it was somehow happened that way. And I had other people who told me they would take it, and I'd look at the gifts that they were supposed to have, and then I looked at them, and I realized, something's wrong here. This doesn't fit. 
How do you know what your gifting is? Well, again, in Romans 12, 1, Paul said it really well. He said, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And he goes on, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You see, when you begin to serve within community, your callings and giftings will become evident. You will begin to see what God has uniquely created you to do. As you learn to be faithful in that which is little, God will begin to expand the parameters. And that's why we need to understand that it also involves, thirdly, maturity, because there's no substitute for experience. When Paul was talking about spiritual leaders in the church in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he said, he must not be a recent convert. The word's neophyte, which means both new to you and new to Christ. It can't be an unknown quantity. That persons who come into a community of believers like this and want to serve need to understand that they have a responsibility to become known. In fact, known well before they're given responsibilities because simply says, then you will be able to, excuse me, they must keep hold of the key truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. The word tested there, probably a clearest English equivalent is the word to be assayed. The idea of you take metal and you diagnose what it's made of by melting it down and testing it. That somehow that we are developed in the process of learning to serve and interact with other people. Now, here's my, my problem with interacting with other people. You guys are sinners. Uh, and uh, somehow people can bring out both the best and the worst in us, right? As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Well, how do two pieces of iron sharpen each other? It's called friction. The friction creates heat, and heat causes the metal, the molecules to soften so that you can rehone the blade so it becomes a cutting instrument again. That part of the dynamic of the Christian life is conflict with other Christians. We live in a culture that cuts and runs when there's conflict. That's why we have the divorce rate that we have. That's why we have the relational difficulties we have. This is a cultural behavior, not a spiritual behavior. It's a cultural response. And I see it in the church. That we don't work through issues. We just cut and run. Actually, I'll get more into that next week. But we need to understand that that's part of the process. How do we learn to love and to forgive other people unless we're in that kind of intensive relationship? The problem is the bigger the church, the easier it is to avoid that. The smaller the congregation, the smaller the group, the more in-your-face issues become. Yeah, if you have problems with somebody right now in this room, there is another service you can show up to where hopefully they're not there. Or hopefully they are. But you see, there's no substitute for the experience of growing together and being known by other people so that you are both fully loved and you are also fully known by other people around you. But once we have really gotten the right attitude and we've gotten the, uh, the right attributes in place, we under, begin to understand who we're called to be and how we're supposed to serve, then all that's left really is what I call real action. 
Because as James warned, he said, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it becomes, uh, becomes a deadness. You see, being involved in serving other people within a community of faith is not something that's optional, contrary to popular opinion. Somehow, somewhere, you need to find a place where you can begin to interact with other people in a real-life situation. That it's no longer just the theoretical. It's no longer something that we just talk about, but it's something we actually do. That we are getting our hands dirty in the labor of the Lord, and that means we may have to wash them off from time to time, but we are engaged, we are involved with one another in a way that makes a difference not only in their life, but it makes a difference in your life. we got to get away from the idea that this stuff is reserved simply for the professionals. That's your job. You're the pastor. No, it's something that it's our job. And some of the most meaningful, life-changing conversations have happened between two people who happen to be doing something very functional together, but in the course of that, conversation began to take place and truth began to be communicated and prayers began to be prayed and relationships began to be built and people began to grow in addressing the real-life issues that they're struggling with on a day-to-day basis with somebody who gets it because it's shoulder to shoulder. This is the idea of Christian community. This is the idea of Christian community. This is the idea of what it means to serve one another. Not something that is optional, but something that is just as inherent as being alive. So that when you're born into a family, you become part of that family. You, whatever that family is, you become part of the family. You know, I know that my family's a little strange because we have personalities. And not like your families where everybody's just kind of normal and all the same, right? And they always, my, my kids and my grandkids always do what I ask in exactly the way that I ask them. They think just like me. It's beautiful. I feel sorry for the rest of you out there. (laughs) The truth of the matter is that sometimes you have to pray for God to give you love for your own kids. And they have to pray that for you. And sometimes you have to humble yourself. And sometimes you have to ask for forgiveness. And sometimes you have to work through stuff. But that's the idea that you don't choose these people. You are placed in their midst. Friends, I hate to tell you this. But if you go around saying, I'm going to choose the church that fits me best, you're going to be transient most of your life. Oftentimes, people will come up to me and say, oh, Pastor, I just love your message. It was so incredible. I said, please, keep on talking. I, I have nothing. And, you know, and they'll go on. And all, all of a sudden, it'll shift. They go, you know, it's not like where I was last. I mean, where I was, the last church I was at, those guys, they are the most loveless. They're hard-hearted. Blah, blah, blah. And I, thought to my, I think to myself, I give them six months before we're that. Because sometimes, as Bobby Knight said, he didn't take transfer students because they're unhappy people looking for a new place to be unhappy. In other words, they're not committed to loving who's there. What makes a marriage survive? Well, in my case, it's because my wife is always lovely and charming. And I know the same is true for me. I'm just so, I'm so amazing. I keep on telling her that. No, the reality, we all know the reality. The reality is that you choose 
to stay committed and connected and engaged and involved in the life of this other person because you know that that's God's will. What is God's will for you? Where are you supposed to be? Who are you supposed to be connecting with? How are you supposed to be interacting with those people? That's where community comes from, and yet we live in a culture that wants it both ways. We really want a Walmart Christianity. You know, we, we just show up, and there's a greeter at the door going, Hi, welcome to Walmart. And, and everything is conveniently priced. We're the church of the 2.5% tithe. And, you know, it's all lower prices, more salvation, less giving, <laughs> more blessings, less serving. And, and we, want it, we roll out and say, yeah, I just love that place, man. The prices are always falling. <laughs> but the minute some, wouldn't be weird if one of those guys in the blue aprons came up to you and said, hey, could you help me carry this load of stuff out off the truck, unload this truck and put it in? A, you just go, wait a minute, I don't work here. I just shop here. That's the kind of Christianity we have today. I don't work here. I just shop here. Um, you guys are scarily quiet today. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, all this that I've stumbled through this morning, that your Holy Spirit somehow would sort it out in, in our minds and our hearts, Lord. Because this has been kind of a tunnel talk this morning, Lord. I think we've been just, just really kind of getting down to some hard issues for a lot of us. We're all afraid of being hemmed in, of being controlled, of being dominated and manipulated. And because we live in that kind of a world where everything seems to operate under the principle of deception and manipulation. And God, I have to confess that many times the church has become that, especially in this culture. It's been all about marketing and selling and attracting through bigger and better and slicker and smoother and cooler and hipper and all the rest. But we've lost something in that process, Lord. We've lost simply the, the pleasure of being part of a redeemed group of people who love you and love each other, are committed to each other, who pray for one another and serve one another and make sacrifices for one another. Lord, we want to be that kind of people. We, we want to be compelled by your love to love you and to love other people. We want to be we want to serve in a way that we can begin to see the unique way in which you have gifted us to show us that specific place where we fit into the body of Christ, with, that we fit into this community. If indeed we're supposed to be part of this community of believers, Lord, that we'd be committed to it. I, I pray for everyone here, Lord. There are people who are here and, and are supposed to be in some other church, not because they're bad people, but because they're just supposed to be planted someplace else. Lord, I pray you just give them the freedom to, to go and be where they're supposed to be. Because, God, we just need to know that we're where you planted us, where we can bear the most fruit. And I pray, God, that we would not walk out of here this morning saying, we've heard this, but we just don't really put it into action. God, that you'd show us how to step up. That maybe what we volunteer to do may not be a particular area of giftedness and calling 
It may just simply be the place where we start the process of beginning to figure out what that is. But more importantly, Lord, change the attitude of our hearts that it would become more about us and we and less about me and mine. I just ask for that transformation, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close together, and we just invite you to come and partake of the elements of communion. Um, it's really one of those things that, like baptism, that really designates that we are part of the body of Christ. We are part of this community of believers. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison before his execution in his book called Life Together, he just said there is no other uh, concept within Christianity that the church exists in any other kind of construct but to have life together. God never intended us to be lone rangers. And as we partake of these elements, you know, we're, it's, it's the idea of breaking bread. When you broke bread with somebody, you were participating in their life. If you're in the Middle East and you're invited to somebody house, somebody's house for dinner, it's not just simply a dinner date. It's at, they're inviting you to become part of their life. That as the food is ingested, it's the idea that we're both ingesting the same thing and the same thing is tying us all together and we become one. And this was Jesus' vision when he set out to say, this is my body, this is my blood. He was saying, this is what draws us together is our common communion together with Jesus Christ. And that we are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ and by nothing really else. We, we don't dress the same. We don't necessarily do the same things, think the same. We may not even completely speak the same languages. There are so many, there's more things that are different about us than are similar. But there's something about that unity of the Holy Spirit that brings together so many diverse parts that in the midst of it, suddenly God becomes glorified. And I just encourage you. I would urge you that as you partake of these elements, that there would be that surrendering of yourself to simply say, God, I want you to be the central purpose and focal point of my life. And I give you permission to place me where you want me to be, that you would empower me to serve my brothers and sisters in a way that would be life-changing for them. And that, God, you'd give me the courage to actually follow through on that and not just think about it. <laughs>